Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Last time on A Killing on the Cape. The DNA was the single most important piece of evidence in this case. Tim and Toppy and Every other suspect wasn't going to be tried. Without a match, no one was going to trial. None of the other suspects would have been charged. The investigation really hit a dead end. They found no evidence that any of the people they had been investigating were involved in Krista's murder. So they turned to what many people call a forensic Hail Mary to try to get some leads. The story centers around a case of rape and murder in Massachusetts. It drew national attention because police tried to find the killer by asking every man in a small town to submit DNA. Then, after three years of searching, police finally got their break. From ABC Radio in 2020, I'm Mark Remillard, and this is A Killing on the Cape. Christopher McCowan was in his bed on a Thursday evening in April 2005 when state police officers in those windbreaker jackets with the word police on the back came to his house and told him he's heading down to the state police barracks on the lower Cape. He was 33 years old at the time. They gave him some shoes and a sweater. They put him in cuffs before walking him out of his house and into the back of an unmarked police car. I remember seeing the film uh, of him and of being brought out of his house and he was just completely lost it was almost like he was in his pajamas uh, you know he was in a pair of loose jeans and a, and a t-shirt and he was stumbling towards the car now this is in the immediately leading up to the so-called interview that's christopher mccowan's former attorney bob george state police took video of chris being led out of the house which you can see during our 2020 television special of this podcast on friday november 24th he's been arrested for murder of the most high-profile case in Cape Cod in half a century. And he is marched over to the state police barracks. That's my memory of it. I remember seeing on the news the arrest, because it was big news at the time that they had finally arrested. Like any prosecutor's office would announce that they've solved a cold case, because it was a cold case. It had now been more than three years since Krista Worthington's murder, and in that time, police had looked at Ava's father, Tony Jacket, Krista's ex-boyfriend, Tim Arnold, her father, Toppy Worthington, and his girlfriend, Beth Porter, but all those leads went nowhere. They even looked at the whole town of Truro, but in all that time, they still hadn't been able to make an arrest. 
they had collected a lot of evidence from the crime scene, hair, fibers, blood samples, and more. But the most important pieces were the saliva and semen found on Krista's body from a single unknown male. And when investigators finally figured out it was Christopher McCowan's DNA, he was arrested within days. When an arrest was made, we were stunned, especially since the person who was arrested was not anybody we had ever heard of. Amalia Barrada was a reporter for WCVB in Boston and covered Chris McCowan's trial. Chris's arrest was surprising, not just because he had never been brought up publicly in the investigation before, but also due to the fact that he happened to be one of the few black men in the community. When the arrest was made, I thought, God, they're arresting a black garbage man. I can't believe it. It seemed like a cliche. It seemed like, oh, good, we got somebody. When I had heard that Chris McGowan was being charged with her murder, I was in shock. I said, they've got the wrong person. This person just would not do that. He wouldn't do that to anybody. When I heard that it was Chris that got arrested, I, I couldn't even... I just, I I almost couldn't even breathe. The arrest of Chris McCowan, a 33-year-old black man, for the murder of a wealthy white woman added another layer to an already complicated national story. The development would immediately ignite controversy and leave some still questioning to this day whether Chris received a fair trial. But before we get into Chris's trial and all the events that led up to it, let's start at the beginning. Who is Chris McCowan? It's a humid day on July 7th, 2017, in Woodbridge, Virginia, 30 miles south of Washington, D.C. This is Chris at his, at his school in Frederick. This is the home of Roy McCowan, Christopher McCowan's father. Roy McCowan has a round and friendly face set behind a pair of aviator glasses, his mustache starting to show some white hair. That's up, uh, again, it's Chris on top of the mountain. Chris was born in Oklahoma in March of 1972. His father printed newspapers for a living in Tulsa, while his mother lived in Frederick, Oklahoma, about 200 miles southwest, tucked just above the Texas state line near the Panhandle. Well, well, my sister called me and said that that, that, uh, that, uh, that I needed to come home and uh, and check out this little boy that this girl said that uh, was my son. So 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 I so I had been dating Chris's uh, mom. For, off and on for a while. So I went home and there he was in, in the bassinet and, uh, and he looked up at me and as if he said, hey dad. So, and so from that day on, it's been me and him. So. Roy McCowan would end up leaving the newspaper and joining the military not long after Chris was born. And the decision brought him closer to Chris as he was stationed in an Air Force base not far from Frederick. So, and then my first duty station, I was 36 miles from, from my hometown. That's where Chris was. So the next for the next uh, three and a half years, I, I, I saw Chris about four times a week. Well, when Chris was born, he, he, was, born, he, he was born with epilepsy. And Roy says Chris needed a lot of medical attention when he was young because he would suffer from seizures. But his eyes would go up into the top of his head, and he would just stiffen up, and he would just kind of like uh, look off like, it, like, like he's in, in the space, and he would just, he didn't have like, 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 like the grandma seizures. He would, he would just have... You know, just it's like like a mild seizure, and but but he would have them, and when during that period of time, it, it's he, he's none and void. You know, he he doesn't speak, and his eyes are up in his head, and 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 he doesn't have any any feeling of anything. He just he just he's in a state. 
They suspected that he had probably fallen off the bed or something when he was when he when he was he was an infant. However, the doctors had concluded that he must have, but but there was no no uh, no damage, no no there was no no tell, 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 tell evidence that that had happened. But they suspected that he had probably fallen off the bed, hit his head. So and they they think that's what caused it. Roy says the constant need for medical attention and the fact that the children's hospital where Chris would receive treatment was 120 miles away made raising Chris difficult, according to Roy. And Chris would end up going to live with his paternal grandmother. My mom had a huge house, and he always had his own room, and 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 so she uh and so she always she had a garden. She always sold sold garden, uh, you no know, vegetables and things. And so 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 food wise, he always had plenty of that, and he always had clothes and things. So 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 my mom, she pretty much raised him. Roy says Chris outgrew his seizures by the time he was about 13 years old. As a boy, Roy says Chris was a big child and that he excelled in sports, particularly football. But as he went on in school, he started to fall behind. Something Roy thinks was a result of the medication he was taking for his seizures. But then, by the time he got to third or fourth grade, he started having some difficulties. As long as he knows the work, they say Chris is great. But the minute the work gets above him, they say he just wanted all to stop. He, he, wanted, he wanted a disruption, so, so I would always be called back to the school, uh, your boy done this, your boy done that. Uh, I said, okay. So. Chris would be placed into special education classes, which Roy says didn't further his education, and Chris ended up dropping out of high school in his senior year. Chris had also started getting into some trouble by the time he was a teenager. Roy had relocated to Key West, Florida by that time, but Chris was still in Oklahoma. Roy says Chris got into trouble for stealing checks from his grandmother and one time for staying out all night. Chris, a 15-year-old, you know, fifteen year old, you can't just leave and not, like, stay out, spend the night somewhere else and not, not, but that's before cell phones and, and, and calls and whatever. So, so Chris, Chris stayed in that type of trouble. Juvenile trouble. No, it, it, it was every bit of it. Juvenile trouble, and he he didn't rob a bank or a jewelry store or something. So he would he he would what he would do a petty stuff. Chris would come to live with his father in Florida, but the trouble would follow, including a conviction for grand theft that landed Chris behind bars for about a year and a half between 1993 and 1994. His father seems to chalk it up to him being in the wrong place at the wrong time. However, okay, we're in Key West, so one of Chris's friends uh, stole the moped. And so he stopped by, picked Chris up, and Chris is riding him on the moped. But by Chris being 18 years old and the kid being 16, Chris got charged because he was the adult. Chris's criminal record would continue to grow during the years he was in Florida, including a stolen property conviction. He left Florida in 1995 and moved to Cape Cod. Roy says Chris moved there to be closer to an ex-girlfriend of his, Pamela McGuire. Chris and Pamela met in Florida and had a daughter together. After Chris got in trouble, Pamela left Key West to move back to Cape Cod, where she was from originally. Roy says not long after he got out of jail, Chris decided to follow her up there. But Chris was in love with Pam. So Chris caught the bus, and he went, went, went to the Cape to be with Pam. So, so that's, where, that's, where, that's, where, that's, where, that's where he was. But, but when he found that job with, uh, with, 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 with the sanitation company, that was, our, that was excellent. That was ideal. You know, so everybody gave him a truck, and so he was able to, you know, function. In the Cape, Chris made a living working as a garbage man for a company called Cape Cod Disposal. 
My name is Matthew Salamone. I'm from the Boston area. Matt Salamone was a co-worker of Chris McCowan's. I lived on the Cape for two and a half years, um, year-round, and for about 10 years coming down for summers. I first met Chris McCowan. I remember when I went to work my first week uh, I was put to, with somebody to train me on some of the routes, and it, it was Chris McCowan who, who was my trainer. What the company does is they have scheduled routes for summer homes. Um, the homeowner will, open, will set up an account to have trash pickup however many times a week that they deem necessary for their renters, uh, and we go around and pick up their trash. During the winter months, uh, basically, we did the same, um, the same job, but it was not as busy of a schedule. Matt we were, says for two full years, he lived in an adjacent cottage to Chris that was owned by the owner of Cape Cod Disposal. Chris and I were very close. We hung out all day at work, all day after work. Uh, we, we became very close. He didn't have much family. Um, on the Cape, his family was from out of state, so he became a member of my family. He called my mom, mom. He would be at all our holiday dinners. Uh, he he would he was always welcome in our home, whether it be mine, my mother's. When you live in a desolate area where there's not much going on, you have to entertain yourself, and uh, living with Chris was was entertainment. But being a black man on the Cape, Matt says, made Chris stand out. Back in 2000, Barnstable County, which makes up Cape Cod, was more than 94 percent white. Blacks, meanwhile, made up less than 2 percent of the population. Even today, the black population is still under 2 percent. His appearance was outside the norm for Outer Cape uh, year-round residents. Uh, he was a very intimidating, big Dark, dark skinned man, um, bald. He, he had the look of, if you were going to stereotype uh, a big, scary black man, that would be what Chris looked like. Um, the thing is, that's not who Chris was. And as soon as you would talk to him, you would know that. Chris was a very fun guy to work with. Um, his, his stature was not def- descriptive of who he was. Uh, he's a very big, strong man with a, with a very uh, sensitive, like, funny side to him. He was always a prankster, a jokester. Um, he had a lot of respect from all the employees and our boss, who was a pretty well-liked member of the community. Good morning. My name is Don Horton. Don Horton was the owner of Cape Cod Disposal. He hired Chris and gave him a place to stay. Chris saw that, must have seen that sign, housing available, and that's what excited him about getting a place to stay. But they had to work for me. I wasn't going to, I didn't have housing for others. I just had housing for, um, for people who worked for me. I put him to work on a route with somebody else for about a week or so so that he could learn the route that he was going to be doing that summer. And it worked out very well. Chris was a willing person. Chris, Chris was very willing to, to do whatever I asked him to do. 
Chris was uh, very, I think he was well-liked by many of the people on his route, yes. Don and Matt both say Chris had a good rapport with the residents along his route, which included 50 Depot Road, Krista Worthington's house. By the time Chris began working at Cape Cod Disposal, he was no longer dating Pamela, the woman he left Florida for, and instead was now involved with a woman named Kelly Tabor. Chris and Kelly began dating in 1998 and also have a daughter together who was born in 2000. They lived with Chris in the cottage he rented from Don Horton. But this didn't stop Chris from fooling around with other women, however. I knew many of Chris's girlfriends. Chris just had a, a weakness for women who, who were attracted to him. Chris had a lot of woman juggling going on. Chris's father, Roy, also says Chris was somewhat of a player. Chris is athletic and, 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 and sees Chris as just a, a, a stud muffin, as they call him. <laughs> so he, he likes it, so he, it, feeds, it, feeds, it feeds the need that he has inside of him. So Chris is just that type of man. Chris, Chris is like electricity. Take the path of least resistance. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and Chris be in places where some women would, <laughs> would resist him, you know, would embrace him. I like my coffee black. I like my women black. Chris likes his coffee with lots of cream and sugar. <laughs> That's how he likes his women. And, and, it seems, and that seems to be the type. So, so that's just that's just it. It is what it is. And according to Chris, his escapades with women even included some on his route. ABC's chief legal analyst Dan Abrams. McCallan had sexual relationships with a lot of different women, but he also says that he had a number of consensual relationships with women who were on his route when he was collecting garbage. When you're working for the company that Chris and I worked for, you're seeing the same people two to three times a week, every week, you talk to the same people, you get to know them. Well, it's uncommon for people on a trash route to just go in and, you know, uh, have a relationship with... Uh, but it's not, it's not uncommon for people to, to uh, hook up, I guess, you know, if the urge strikes them to, to do something, they, they can, but I, you know... <laughs> I feel kind of tricked that he was doing it on company time and getting paid for it. I mean, that's Cape Cod disposal owner Don Horton. And one of the women that Chris says he hooked up with on his route, Krista Worthington. Early on in the investigation into Krista's murder, police would actually speak to Chris. On April 3rd, 2002, three months after the murder... Trooper Christopher Mason and Sergeant William Burke came to speak with Chris since he was Krista's garbage man. ABC News consultant and former FBI profiler Brad Garrett says the investigation would naturally look at anyone who had access or reason to be at Krista's house. When you look at Krista Worthington's homicide, it just screams of this is an intimate murder. Using that as a template, you're going to have to eliminate basically all boyfriends and all people who have regular contact with her. She's going to see the same people. She's going to have the same dentist. She's going to have the same garbage collection person. She's going to have the same water reading reading meter type of person. All those people are going to be the same. And you're going to have to interview all of them because 
they probably had an interaction with her. First Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke spoke with Don Horton, who told them Krista had been a customer of his since 2000 and that her regular pickup day was on Thursdays. And then they spoke to Chris. According to the report, Chris says he would pick up Krista's trash from a wooden bin near the house. They asked him if he'd ever removed anything from inside the home or the porch. Chris said no and that he didn't know Krista. Chris also said he didn't know anything about the murder, just what he'd seen in the news. Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke said they might need to get his fingerprints and DNA in the future. Chris said it was no problem, and that was the end of the interview. He volunteered his DNA, but they didn't take it at that time. Beth Karras is an attorney and covered Chris's trial for Court TV. He, he wasn't fleeing. He wasn't hiding. He's volunteering his DNA. He didn't act like somebody who was guilty of this. From talking with those who know Chris, such as Roy, Don, and Matt, you take away a snapshot of Chris that is similar to the picture that would eventually be painted by the defense at his trial. His dad liked to call Chris a follower, said he's like electricity, taking the path of least resistance, that Chris is a ladies' man that liked to flirt with women but never seemed to take rejection personally. They say he's a high school dropout with low intelligence. And finally, that his checkered past doesn't mean he's capable of murder. In fact, his father says the opposite. And, and the character of the person was, was, was not this person that day that we read about. The single fact of Crystal's death, the one single fact of her death that somebody hated her so much that they stabbed the knife all the way through her body and it stuck in the floor. That's rage. That ain't, that's rage. So who hated her that much? And, if, and, and Chris being a lover like him, <laughs> that wasn't the kind of hate that he had. As long as I've known Chris, I have never seen any violent side of him, and I have seen many, many sides of Chris. Chris's friend, Matt Salamone. We were inseparable for over two years, worked together and hung out together. I have never seen him in a fist fight with a man. I've never seen him raise his hands to a woman. As far as I'm concerned, Chris has no violence in him. But as police kept hitting dead ends in the investigation, they'd eventually circle back around to Chris two years later. And this time, they'd come to see him in a much different light. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It was now March 2004, two years since Krista Worthington's murder and since police first interviewed Chris when they decided to talk to him a second time. By now, they'd done a more extensive background check and it raised some red flags. 
They knew about some of Chris's past convictions, but they also saw a number of restraining orders that had been filed against him in domestic disputes. ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. The allegations made against him over the years were disturbing, ranging from grabbing someone's neck, strangling, pushing, scaring. The first restraining order was filed in 1998 by Pam McGuire, the woman Chris moved to Cape Cod for. In her affidavit, Pam says she was afraid of Chris because of things that had happened in the past. She claims he had pushed her against the fridge, intimidated her, thrown a remote at her, and thrown the coffee table. A year later, 1999, another ex-girlfriend, Amy, filed a restraining order against Chris, claiming he shattered the window of her car. Then there was Lori Mayhood and her daughter, Katie. Lori and Katie lived in Massachusetts in 1999, and Lori tells us that the restraining order against Chris stems from a night when then 16-year-old Katie ran away from home. And she was at a point in her life where she just did not want to be home. She wanted her freedom. She had friends. She wanted to be on her own. Katie had become friendly with Chris, who was 26 years old at the time. They met at a local Dunkin' Donuts. She worked there, and he was a customer. One night, Katie ended up spending the night at Chris's house, something that worried her mother. I found out that she was hanging out with Christopher when she ran away from home one night. I called the police department, who went searching for her, and they came back and told me that she had been picked up hitchhiking by a vehicle. I had a very long night of worry. They found her the next day in Christopher's apartment. I was wondering what Christopher was doing with my daughter overnight in his apartment. The police advised me when they brought Katie home the next morning from Christopher's to take her to Hyannis Hospital and have her examined to have basically a rape kit tested to see if there had been any sexual activity. When, there, when we got the results back, they were negative. So we knew that there were, were not any, any of that going on. So I went back to the police and I said, where do I go from here? And he said, you need to go get a restraining order against this guy to keep him away from your daughter. When we went and spoke with Lori and Katie, we expected that they would be anything but complimentary of Chris. But we were wrong. Katie says the night that she stayed at Chris's was an innocent evening. Actually, I'm pretty sure that night all we did was watch movies until about 2 a.m. And I fell asleep and got up and went back home the next morning. So, In fact, Katie says Chris was very kind to her. My first impression of Christopher was he was um, caring, very, very generous, um, very polite. Never seemed um, mean or rude. Um, yes, Christopher never once disrespected me in any way. Never once has he ever made an unwanted pass at me. Christopher, I know, was scared he was going to get in trouble for something that he didn't do, even though, I mean, yes, I was there, but I, there wasn't, it was harmless. There was nothing going on, 100% gentlemen. Even Katie's mom, Lori, now says the restraining order was a tool to keep her daughter away from Chris, but says she doesn't think Chris is violent nor capable of murder. I needed the restraining order in order to enforce my daughter not to go back to that place. I think he left her stay there to keep because he knew she was going to be out walking the streets and hitchhiking 
And for her to stay safe, she needed to be in a safe place, and his house was a safe place. He did not touch her. He did not have sex with her. You know, he simply picked her up and took her to his house for the night and kept her off the streets overnight. When I heard that they had arrested Christopher McCowan for the murder, I point blank said, no, he did not do this. He was too mild-mannered. He was gentle. He was friendly. He was outgoing. There was no reason to think that this man was a murderer. I do not think that he's a violent person. Fast forward to January 2004, two months before cops would come and see Chris again. He would have another restraining order filed against him. This time, it was Kelly Tabor, Chris's former girlfriend, the one he was with at the time of Chris's death and the mother of one of his daughters. In her affidavit, Kelly claimed that Chris and her got into a fight one evening and that he threatened her, saying, quote, if you say one more word, I will snap your neck. She called the police and Chris was taken to jail. He was eventually sentenced to probation for making domestic violence-related threats. But like Lori Mayhood and her daughter Katie, Kelly too now says she regrets getting a restraining order against Chris. She wouldn't do a formal interview with us, but told us that she doesn't believe Chris is violent nor capable of murder. In fact, we tried to track down all the women who had restraining orders against Chris and got a hold of Pam McGuire, who also said she regretted getting one. ABC News consultant and former FBI profiler Brad Garrett says restraining orders can be tricky in a murder case like this. You know, restraining orders, I think when the general public look at them go, he did what? He struck her. He did this. He did that. Well, that may have occurred and it may not have occurred. And the reason why is that people take out restraining orders against significant others because they're mad. They're mad because they didn't get child support. They're just there's something about the relationship that they're just angry about. And so they use the police and the justice system to go after somebody. That's not to suggest that people shouldn't go and get restraining orders. I'm only suggesting that if you're investigating a case that's a homicide, for example, and people have made all these allegations about physical altercations, you got to figure out exactly well, what does that mean. And so how do you do that? You go and do two things. One is you interview the people who filed or, you know, requested the restraining order, and you talk about them. Well, did you have injuries? Did you get bruised? Do you have a broken bone or whatever? You know, is there any documentation of that? But Chris's arrest history and the restraining orders didn't look good. And Brad Garrett says for police, his history would make Chris stand out amongst the other plumbers, electricians, and other routine visitors that would have come to Chris's home. He has all these arrests and restraining orders. It's interesting because none of them sort of ended up significantly playing out in court. Sometimes the charges were dropped, sometimes they were diminished. But the point being, there was at least some documented evidence that he got physical with people, not to the point that he killed them or even seriously harmed them, but that he had the capacity to at least get physically aggressive. Uh, and, you know, that, that obviously piqued the police interest a little bit, like if, if that can make him mad, you know, why wouldn't this other thing potentially happen? And he ends up killing Krista. So police had to re-interview Chris. By now, he was no longer working for Cape Cod Disposal, and so it took some searching for detectives to find him. They end up speaking to him on March 18, 2004, while he was having a meeting with his probation officer. A report from his second interview says they reviewed what Chris told investigators before, and it was more of the same, that he didn't know Krista and had only seen her around her house. 
He again says that he'd never been inside Krista's home. In both cases, he basically says he hardly knew her. He just went there to collect her trash. And that was it. ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. Police tell him that sperm had been recovered from Krista's body, so they again ask if he'd be willing to submit a DNA sample. And just like before, Chris said he was willing, but this time, police actually took a swab of Chris's mouth. The detectives didn't know it at the time, but they had just collected the match for their most important piece of forensic evidence. It still wouldn't be for another 13 months until cops would put cuffs on Chris. After collecting his DNA, the sample was among many that sat waiting for testing as the Massachusetts State Crime Lab faced a backlog. In fact, it was 10 months after police took Chris's sample when they would hold their controversial DNA dragnet, drawing in another 150 to 200 more samples. But on April 7, 2005, three years into their investigation, Trooper Mason was told by the state crime lab that they had gotten a match for the DNA found on Krista's body. The official lab results came in six days later, and Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke would arrest Chris McCowan the next day, April 14, 2005. District Attorney Michael O'Keefe announced the arrest on the 15th, making national headlines and drawing questions about the delay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm District Attorney Michael O'Keefe. We have a brief uh, statement to make. Last night at approximately 7.15 p.m., detectives from the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit assigned to my office arrested Christopher A. McGowan, age 33 for the 2002 murder of Krista A. Worthington. From ABC News World Headquarters in New York, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight, Elizabeth Vargas. Good evening. We start tonight with a murder solved and a national debate invigorated. Today, police announced they got the killer and revealed they had the evidence to arrest him for more than a year. The problem was a massive backlog at the crime lab. There was such a backlog at the crime lab that you weren't able to process this DNA and match it? We weren't able to process it any more quickly than we did. But because you, there was a backlog? Because obviously there's a backlog. But you have The arrest took place at Chris's boarding house in Hyannis, on the southern end of the Cape, where he was living at the time. When officers came in, Chris was in bed watching television. They put him in cuffs and took him to the state police barracks in South Yarmouth, about 20 minutes away. Seated in a conference room, they read Chris his Miranda rights and tell him that he could waive those rights. He agrees and decides to talk to them without a lawyer. According to Trooper Mason's report, they also ask him for consent to record their conversation, something Chris denies. What happens next is a six-hour interview that, along with the DNA evidence, would play a key role against him at trial. No audio recordings or interrogation tapes of Chris's interview exist. The roughly six hours police spent with him were instead summarized in a 27-page report written by Trooper Christopher Mason. Chris's story, as laid out in that report, begins the same as the other times he was interviewed, that he didn't know Krista. They ask Chris what type of person he thinks could have committed the crime. Chris says he doesn't know, but that the guy who did it must have been, quote, drunk or stupid. Why's that? Chris says it's because police in Florida called him a smart criminal, and that if he would have done it, he would have made sure that Krista was alone and that her kid didn't see anything. They then tell Chris they got DNA evidence from Krista's body, something Chris says is another thing that showed the guy who did it was stupid. Then they hand Chris a report from the crime lab that showed a match for his DNA. 
The first two times that McGowan was questioned by the authorities, basically denied knowing her. But then they hand him the DNA report. Well, this, this, some of the strongest evidence against Christopher McGowan is his statement. I mean, he, he denies knowing her, and then his semen is inside her. I mean, hello? ABC's then- chief legal analyst Dan Abrams and Beth Karras, who covered Chris's trial for Court TV. Trooper Mason later testified about the moment he gave Chris the report at his trial. After you uh, showed him that report, slid it across the table to him, what did he do next? Uh, Mr. McCallum bowed his head down, looked at the report for, I would estimate, approximately one minute. And then what did he do? Uh, Mr. McCallum then stated, it could have been me. It could have been me? It could have been me. It could have been me. Startling words from the man who has denied knowing Krista twice. Mason asked him what he meant by that, and Chris says he could have had sex with her but doesn't remember because he was so drunk. Chris tells him that Fridays and Saturdays are his party nights, and that the Friday of the weekend that Krista was killed, he was with his friend, Jeremy Frazier, at a local spot called the Juice Bar. Jeremy plays an important role in Chris's version of events to police, so remember that name. The Juice Bar was an underage club, and on January 4th, 2002, two days before Krista's body was found, the place held a rap contest. There's actually video footage from this night. It shows Chris and Jeremy at the rap show. Chris is mostly off to the side. He's wearing a red and black sports jersey. Then there's Jeremy wearing a blue and white Nautica sweater and a blue baseball cap. He actually participates in the rap contest. You can see some of this video on our website at abcnews.com slash Cape. At the time, Jeremy went by a few different nicknames. In the video, someone calls him Blaze at one point, but he was most well-known as Wu in honor of Wu-Tang Clan, the 90s rap group. To put this into perspective, author of Reasonable Doubt, the fashion writer, Cape Cod, and the trial of Chris McCowan, and a consultant to this story, Peter Manzo. Now, this in itself is a very interesting phenomenon. You have this group of a half dozen eight, nine white kids in Wellfleet who want nothing more than to be rappers. They want to be black rappers, Wu-Tang Clan. The Wu-Tang Clan is a well-known rock, uh, rap group. Chris McCowan was made to order. Big, sturdy, hip, black guy. Pot smoker. There were no other black, no other black people around. He drew these guys like a magnet. He adored the attention. So Chris and Jeremy are at the juice bar, and McCowan tells Trooper Mason that he's already lit, that he was drinking heavily, and that's all he remembers. He says he doesn't remember having sex with Krista and that he woke up the next morning at home. Trooper Mason keeps pressing him to try and remember more, though. And at one point, Chris says, quote, Honestly, I don't know. How do you want me to remember anything? The report then says Chris again stated that he blacked out at the juice bar. But as Trooper Mason presses again for him to remember more, Mason writes that Chris bowed his head and said that he had, in fact, had sex with Krista. He again states he really doesn't remember anything and denies killing her. They then tell him to go back over what happened that Friday night. And now, according to the report, Chris says that he and Jeremy could have gone to Krista's. Um, McCowan claims that he asked Jeremy to drive him to Krista's so he could have sex. Uh, He didn't want to drive himself. He was afraid of getting busted for drunk driving. He was wasted. Author and consultant Peter Manzo. Throughout the 27-page report, you see Chris's story develop step by step, two steps forward and one step back. 
They ask him again to go over that night. Chris says he's at Krista's house with Jeremy and that he's having sex with Krista. They ask him if he argued with her at all. He says no and that if someone tells him they're not interested in sex, then he's, quote, fine with that. They ask Chris why they went to Krista's in the first place. Chris says it was probably his idea and that he told Jeremy he knows a woman in Truro he, Chris, can have sex with. They ask Chris where they had sex. He says in the hallway by the kitchen, right near where Krista's body was eventually found. But he also says it could have been in the living room. His response was, I at her. I don't know. Is that a direct quote, sir? Yes, it is. Chris says in the police interview that after having sex with Krista, everything was, quote, cool, and that he went home. But then the story turns. As police ask Chris what time he got to Krista's, he says between 1.15 and 1.45 in the morning, and that everything was fine until he says Jeremy started rummaging through Krista's things. Author Peter Manzo. And McCowan's account was that he went up there, and he and Krista got it on. And Jeremy, meanwhile, meanwhile, was robbing Krista. Trooper Mason recounted at trial what Chris told him during the interview. Following the sex, uh, Krista Worthington confronted Jeremy Frazier about um, about what he was doing uh, in in her office. He and Jeremy Frazier then uh, left the residence, and that Krista Worthington followed them out. Um, at which point, again, this is the McAllen account, Krista comes barreling out of the house and starts screaming at Frazier, you you thief, I want my stuff back, something to that effect. According to the reports, Chris tells police that Krista ran back into the house and he could see that she had a phone to her ear, and he told Jeremy that Krista was going to call the police. He says Jeremy then went after her and kicked in the door. Chris says when Jeremy came back out, he was sweaty and told Chris that he had beat her up. Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke again asked Chris to go back. This time, he says Krista followed them out of the house and she was arguing with Jeremy and that Jeremy hit her twice in the face. Chris says that's when Krista ran back in the house. But this time, when Jeremy went after her, Chris says Jeremy said, quote, I'm just going to do her. Chris says he waited outside and Jeremy came out after 10 minutes, turned back and kicked in the door. Chris says he thought Jeremy was going to make it look like a burglary. Inching along, Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke keep pushing Chris, telling him that he knows more. Chris then says that after Jeremy hit Krista, that he hit her too. This is Sergeant Burke talking about the interview at Chris's trial. She confronted Jeremy, that uh, Jeremy beat her, he beat her. He said, we put the boots to her. He said, I still can hear her hit the ground. She hit the ground hard. According to Mason's report, Chris tells police that Jeremy pulled a knife from the butcher block and he watched as Jeremy stabbed Krista in the hall by the kitchen. He says they left the house and when they got in the car, Jeremy had a black shirt in which he'd wrapped the knife, a purse, and a phone. Chris says he never talked to Jeremy about what happened to those items. Author Peter Manzo. Uh, That was the final version that emerged from the six-hour interview. The whole report is a meandering tale that inches forward with more details arising each time Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke ask Chris to go back and start from the top. Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke ask Chris, why would Jeremy kill Krista? He says it was probably because she was calling 911 on them. Remember, police found a phone on the table with just the digit 9 punched in. Was there a connection? A little after 1.30 in the morning on the night of Chris's arrest, Sergeant Burke and Trooper Mason ended the interview. During the entire six hours, Chris never admitted to having killed Krista, but did say, quote, 
Yeah, I had sex with her. Yeah, I beat her ass. But it was Jeremy that stabbed her. ABC News consultant and former FBI profiler Brad Garrett. You have all of those versions, which was from I don't know anything. I did have sex with her to being around, but didn't wasn't involved in the homicide to literally sounds like being in the same room when the homicide occurred. He changes the version, but he never puts a knife in his hand. Sergeant Burke told Chris that many of the things he described matched what they believed happened at Krista's house during her murder. But Sergeant Burke told him that he believed Chris was alone the whole time and that Jeremy had never been there. Chris says, quote, and it's all on me if Jeremy can account for his time, because unbeknownst to Chris, police had also picked up Jeremy and interviewed him at the same time they were interviewing Chris, making things worse for Chris. Jeremy had an alibi. Author Peter Manzo. Jeremy, on the other hand, claims that he went home with his buddy Sean Mulvey. He claims that he slept on Mulvey's couch. Father was Mulvey's father was away, out of town. Sean Mulvey was a friend of Jeremy's who was also at the Juice Bar earlier that Friday night. He can also be seen in the video of that rap contest. In fact, he takes part in it as well. According to police reports, Jeremy told investigators that he and Sean were at the Juice Bar that night, and Chris was also there. Afterwards. They went to a party where there was a fight and everyone got kicked out. But instead of Chris and Jeremy leaving and then going up to Krista's, as Chris told police, Jeremy tells officers that he left with Sean Mulvey and stayed at Sean's dad's house. Police would interview Mulvey, and the first time he told them he didn't remember anything about that night and hardly remembers Jeremy. But when they see him a second time, a few months later, he says that he originally didn't want to get involved, but now backs up that Jeremy was with him at his father's house that night. Mulvey alibis Frazier. He says that Frazier went home with him to his pop's house. His father was out of town. The two of them uh, were supposedly returned to the house the early hours of the morning, tried to call girls. Frazier eventually went to sleep on the couch, woke up late the next morning. Jeremy has always denied going to Krista's house. He says he has nothing to do with the murder, and police believe him. Armed with a statement that puts Chris at the scene of the murder, DNA evidence that links him to the body, and an alibi for the man Chris claims is the killer, police booked and charged Chris McCowan with the murder of Krista Worthington. And by now, you might be thinking things look really bad for Chris. But as I said back in episode one at the beginning of this podcast, what if things aren't really that simple? As the defense started to push back on each piece of evidence against Chris, They'd come to raise questions about just how reliable his statement to police is. You're talking about somebody who is low IQ, under the influence of drugs, and somebody who's trying to appease their captors. He was the type of person who could be easily misled and led down the primrose path by certain type of interrogators or certain type of questioning because he aimed to please. This interview of the man arrested for a crime that the whole nation knew about, this was in New York Times, People Magazine, USA Today, you name it, was not taped. This is a six-hour interrogation of a number one suspect in, a, suspect in a major crime. And what about the DNA evidence that linked Chris to Krista? What does it really show? That's the evidence connecting McCowan to the scene. No fingerprints, no blood, um, having consensual sex with her. But that's it. That's right. Chris says he had consensual sex with Krista. And his defense would present a whole new possible scenario as to how that could have happened. What if Chris hadn't been at Krista's at all that Friday night? 
What Christopher McCowan said is that they had sex on that Thursday, that they, uh, on the night before the murder, that he and, and Krista Worthington had consensual sex, and she asked him not to talk about it, not to speak about it, and he respected her wishes. That's next time. A Killing on the Cape is a production of ABC Radio, 2020, and ABC News Digital. David Sloan is 2020 senior executive producer, and Terry Lickstein is our executive producer for this series. Karen Schiffman is our senior editorial producer. Reporting and production by myself, Mark Remillard, Karen Schiffman, Matt Wolf, Kerry Cook, Gail Deutsch, Mark Dorian, Jeff Schneider, Jonathan Balthaser, and Eric Mallow. Peter Manso served as a consultant to ABC News for this story. His book is Reasonable Doubt, The Fashion Writer, Cape Cod, and the Trial of Chris McCowan. Our website is produced by Lauren Efron. That's at abcnews.com slash a killing on the cape. There you can see pictures and pieces from the case, as well as maps with key locations from our episodes. I'm ABC's Mark Remillard. Thanks for listening.